So we are now number 354. Assuming there's no questions from anything that's left over. Of the several branches of yoga, a visitor asked Master, which one do you teach? All of them are basically the same, the the Master answered. They take the seeker by different paths, but their goal is the same, self-realization. Most of the yoga branches, however, are based on different human temperaments, which may be primarily devotional, rational, or active. What we teach here is called Raja Yoga, the Royal Yoga. It is so called because it is central to all of them and is primarily concerned with what they are all meant to achieve, though they go less directly. The inner silence of communion is, in fact, the goal of every path of yoga. The others attain that goal less directly. We, in teaching Raja Yoga, don't ignore those other practices. We take a little bit from each of them, according to people's different temperaments, and show people how to direct their understanding toward that higher purpose, the stillness of inner communion. The goal of Bhakti Yoga, the path of devotion, is not to keep on singing to God. Every great bhakta or devotee of God has entered at last a state of silent communion with him, where his devotion flows toward him inwardly. All the great karma yogis, those who served God according to the principles of karma yoga, the path of selfless service, have reached the point where they realize that the supreme service is to direct all one's energies inwardly in silence to God. And all the great jnanis who follow the path of discrimination and wisdom have realized at last that it isn't in the end by thinking that one achieves wisdom. That wisdom can only be received in inner stillness. Thus all the paths of yoga lead eventually like tributary rivers into the one all-uniting river, of Raja Yoga. You know, it's interesting when we go through this, which is important to understand. And in Swami's Raja Yoga course, he spends a lot of time on bhakti and karma and all of that and how it all comes together. He's also answering discussions that are not discussions that people in the West have that much because we're not steeped in the tradition. So Swami, including this here, is also talking to um, you know, Indian philosophers and, tr- and Indian traditions where there, there tends to be less of an understanding. When I first traveled to India and was asked to present these teachings to various of our devotees and sometimes more public groups, um, at first I was quite intimidated uh, because I just, I felt like people knew more than I did. And I mean, it's not, there's no harm in being respectful. But I gradually came to realize that what Master taught of self-realization is a new expression. And so even people who are very well-versed in India in everything that their tradition stands for, they don't understand Master's self-realization because it's different. And, And that was when I began to realize, well, the first trip I began to realize that Master's teaching is about as Hindu as it is Catholic. (laughs) which, as you can see, these tiny little fragments of overlap. But when you really get into it, you realize that they just are not the same at all. So when Master's talking to us about this balanced approach and how they all lead to the same goal, 
that's sort of obvious to us because that's how we were brought up. But it isn't, it isn't an obvious teaching, and so that's among the reasons he puts it in here. Sometimes, you know, in the context of this book, there's Swami's answering a reality that we don't know about. Um, and also, you know, people argue about these things, and Swami Master's trying to show how it all comes together, that each part of it is needed. And I've certainly seen, you know, um, especially in the West, you know, where devotion is so essential, I remember a conversation where, where it's necessary to, to teach people about devotion. I remember a conversation that Asant Kishavdas, who was an Indian teacher, had with Swami Kriyananda, and they were both talking about how these different uh, fanatical food fads would go through their ashrams, <laughs> which you would just periodically, these things would take over Ananda, whatever it might be, and it was sort of a, actually, it was true in all the ashrams, especially in the 70s. Um, this, this document went around, I, wished I, was, I, I thought I might find it in my files, but apparently I don't have it. It came out of the Transcendental Meditation uh, Group, Sometime in the 70s, there was a transcendental ATM convention, and everybody in the whole convention was on a different diet. And, and somebody in the group just grew tired about it, and he wrote this little document, and it was about the Kabunza diet. And the Kabunza diet had been discovered by some uh, ex- explorer who'd gone deep somewhere into the Amazon jungle, and he'd found this ancient tribe that had been untouched by modern man, and... Um, the people there lived regularly to 150 years old and they were you know, re- having children when they were past 100 and they all were expert volleyball players. How volleyball and there being such an isolated place got together, but anyway. And so, and their diet was very simple. It just consisted of this sort of thick brown porridge and that's all they ate. But they were so healthy, disease was unknown, no cancer, no, you know, no cataracts, nothing. So he managed to get some of the porridge and he brought it back to the West. He had it carefully analyzed and he discovered that it was chemically identical to Hershey with almonds. <laughs> and this is all just the spoo. So then he describes <laughs> the Kabunza diet and then he gives the Kabunza cookbook, which went with it. I mean, this was so what was happening just in all directions. The Kabunza diet, and there was like... Um, a simple kabunza, which is just like you unwrap the candy bar and there it is. And then there's kabunza surprise, where you have Hershey with almonds on top and Hershey with almonds on the bottom, and then you have one in the middle, and that's the kabunza surprise. And you know, it just went on and on with all the stuff that we'd all been seeing. Uh, so that was the atmosphere in which we all lived. And uh, I remember um, Sant Kishabdas and Swamiji talking, and they were they, they said something really interesting. They said. In a very high age, you know, like the end of Treta going into Satya Yuga, where um, matter, matter is, is thinner, is the only way you can think to say it. The veil between the spirit and the material world is much thinner. And everyone is very sattvic. The whole planet is very sattvic and very uplifted. They said, you know, a little bit of physical purification, a little bit of fasting, a little bit of strictness on your diet can actually move you quite far because the, the whole physical reality is much uh, less, he- it's less heavy, it's lighter. But in Kali Yuga, and even in early Dwapara, where the, the reality of matter is so dense, you just can't make progress by mere diet. 
because it just it just can't if affect the maya sufficiently. It was a very interesting conversation. I've always remembered it. it and that's why Master suggested proprietarianism. And he, he just didn't make a... He encouraged vegetarian, but even especially in the beginning years when it was so radical, he, he wasn't even that strict about it because it just wasn't that important. But Sanji and, and Swami were both talking that devotion is the power of an age like this because devotion is what, even more than intellectuality or... I mean, but just devotion is the power that really will move you, you know, just completely shift your awareness, the power of love. And that's why it's so interesting in Sri Yukteswar's book, because you always think of him as a gyani. He really just talks about the power of the heart and the power of devotion. So one of the characteristics of Ananda's path, Master's path in general, is devotion. And, you know, we pray and we talk about God as Divine Mother. Once, once you think about God as Divine Mother, you're, you're entering into a wholly different understanding, even different than Jesus and God the Father, because the Father is the wisdom vibration. And the wisdom vibration is important because it allows your discrimination to be honed, but it's the mother vibration that gives you um, that sense of belonging, that, that intimate sense of acceptance, and that belief in being loved, and that spontaneous you know, giving back. It's, I, I was just watching some uh, movie about a sports hero, and it was, it was so interesting because you know, his mother encouraged him, and he was going against obstacles. It was one of those overcoming obstacles sort of movies. But it, it, I was just so interested because it was, it was assumed you know, that his mother would be with him. And his father was more distant and more, you know, had more criticisms and more concerns. But the mother just put them all aside and just... It, it, it's just that's, that's how we feel it. And that, that power personified by the mother's supporting love, which some people have literally in their lives and some don't, but we know what it looks like, um, that awakens the heart. That'll, that gives you the confidence to open the heart. So Master, you know, he taught us to chant, and, and, and he, his chants are, are not cerebral. His chants are, are very filled with longing and just all this energy that awakens the heart. And then, of course, he was brilliant in his explanation of the philosophy. And Ananda itself really in many ways personifies karma yoga. I, I, I mean, especially in the early years, but even now, you know, we work very hard for our cause. And it's, there's nothing in it for us. I mean, it, meaning it, it's not self-serving. Swami Kriyananda wrote a uh, Material Success Through Yoga Principles course. I, I did a class on it. I called it Mag- uh, Manifesting Through the Power of Yoga, but it's the same course. I think my course is a podcast rather than a YouTube video for those who are watching and might want to find it. And uh, now let me come back to the, what I was saying. Oh, yes. I mean, Swami's a, a, a monk and you know, and had very little private resources, and you would sort of wonder how he could talk about something like that. But the fact of the matter is, hundreds of thousands of dollars, probably millions by the end, passed through Swami's hands, and all self-generated. I mean, not, you know, not inherited, not, not, 
the result of stock market or anything like that, but just generated by the creative energy, by his own creative energy and service. And he, he entered the monastery when he was 22 years old and um, then was uh, expelled from Self-Realization Fellowship organization and therefore the monastery when he was 36. And because of the uh, disharmonious way in which that took place, he was uh, isolated. He was... He was uh, he, he was forbidden to be in contact with any of the people who defined his life. So he was 36 years old. He was in his... He, was, he, he went back to his parents' house. He was staying in their spare bedroom. He had essentially no friends in the world because all his friends were part of SRF and he wasn't allowed to relate to them anymore. He was completely penniless and alone. And from absolutely nothing, he built Ananda, which is this huge worldwide organization. It's really quite a remarkable story. And, you know, it's, it's uh, in one of the advertisements for the course, we said, it's really his is one of the most remarkable rags to riches stories in the world, except it's kind of the story of rags to rags, because he never ever got rich. He just remained an impoverished monk from start to finish. But the money that passed through him, by, generated by his own creative energy, was in the millions. It just went to make this happen instead. But um, that's karma yoga. I mean, that's really what karma yoga is. It's not just sort of polishing the teacups. It's really putting out your energy for something you believe in more than you're interested in what you get back from it. And what you get back from it is the basically the honor of serving. And that's what really changes you. And Swami has often said what makes Ananda what it is, is that people get to serve. And they get to serve in meaningful ways. They don't. I, I met this man who's, in any way, it's not worth saying, but he's part of another group. And his, his service to the group, all the service he does every Sunday, he helped park the cars. I just thought, but, you know, that's not, that's not enough. We really need... I remember because we worked so hard in the early years of Ananda, I remember somebody coming to Swami... And with one of Master's books, and it said, you know, you should meditate so many hours a day and then spend three or four hours a day doing a little God-reminding work and then meditate again long hours in the evening. And he sort of brought this to Swami as if, see, your own guru says we should be living differently. Swami looked at it, he said, oh, that's not for now, that's for a higher age. <laughs> he just closed the book like that. He said, uh, we're establishing a beachhead for Master's work. And it's just, we don't have the leisure to just do that. We have this, we, we have to do. And Swami said in Patanjali, in his Patanjali commentary, that selfless service is the fastest way to overcome the ego. It was just a very, just an unequivocal flat statement, which was interesting. Especially in this age. He, you know, speaking of America, and just, he said, it's so restless. It's not like we can just sit. And Mer- Americans, by temperament, are just so active. We're just always doing something. So the idea that we could just stop doing and would just suddenly go into a higher state of consciousness is not likely. So it's, it's a, just a question of all of it, all of it together. But because we start with Raja Yoga, we don't think that just chanting the name of God is enough. And we don't think that just good works are enough or intellectuality is enough because it all begins with Raja Yoga. So it's a very 
it's among the many reasons why this path is so satisfying. Every time I had, I had the opportunity, and I, I'm not casting any aspersions on anyone, but every time in my life when I've had the opportunity to meet other gurus or go to other ashrams, which, you know, happens every once in a while, either in India or in America, you know, I, I, I've met a few really wonderful souls who do wonderful work, but invariably I come home and I say, I'm so glad that's not my path, because I, this one has given me every dimension that I need. It's not just one part, plus it's given us a whole community which then, of course, then also demands that we participate in all aspects of life, which is all temperaments and all aspects of yoga. So it's very um, helpful. And also, you know, we have different phases in our life. I was talking to someone on the phone, and he was lamenting the fact that, well, he was able to do this for a while and then that for a while. I said, you know, you, you keep thinking that you're just going to, like, get it all settled, and then just it's going to all be like that, that this will be a routine forever. I said, why don't you just think differently? Just think like, you know, you do this for a time and it's great while it works and then you go over here and you just do this other thing. Because we also have very different temperaments. I mean, sometimes we have more time and inclination to chant. And sometimes a a project or work just demands and we just don't. Or our own inner temperament demands. Or we become very scholarly. You know, some book comes out that really captures us or some study and we just follow it. Because we're all of those things, and we just develop one. And then it's, Swami once described self-realization as like a whole warehouse full of furniture that's against one wall, and it all has to be moved to the opposite wall. <laughs> so you just move it a piece at a time. And every so often you'll pick up one piece and walk it all the way to the far wall, but mostly you move everything a few inches. Then you go back and you'll pull a little bit over here, and then you go back over here. It's very disorderly, and it, it doesn't just lend itself to that kind of simple. And, and this is what he's saying. It's all in, the other side of it is it's all encompassing. So, does that help? All right, number 355. A disciple was becoming somewhat proud of his success in developing devotion. The master surprised him one day by saying, if you love yourself, how can you love God? I When I read that, which is so... You know, it's such a simple statement. There's something that gradually comes to all of us on the spiritual path, and it's not always welcome news, which is, let me think exactly how to say it. We have the mistaken impression that we can just keep a few delusions and it'll be okay. And almost all of us have a few delusions that we just put in our pocket and think that God is never going to ask for them. It's just, it just doesn't happen that way. And fortunately, it, it's not appropriate to renounce everything at the same time. And we, we are not asked... That there's, a, there's a metaphysical honesty to the spiritual path, is the only way I can think to say it. It's, it, it's really, it's, it's perfectly exemplified by Kriya when you think about the energy moving up and down the spine. If you think of the energy moving up and down the spine as a flow of a flow of energy like a river. If you think of the vrittis like whirlpools in a river, the vrittis and the chakras, the remaining karma. And if you think of that river flowing, the whirlpool will, will maintain its integrity until the flow of the river becomes too strong 
and then the, the whirlpool will be drawn into the flow of the river. And sometimes when the water is drawn into the flow of the river, it just, it's a perfectly smooth transition and the river simply becomes that much stronger. And, and the, ever thereafter, what more water flows to the, to the sea and, it, and less water is caught up in this whirlpool. That's the vrittis in our chakras. But sometimes if you're thinking of a physical river, when that vritti begins to break up, maybe there's a huge log in there, maybe there's a giant rock, maybe there's a huge mud hole or something like that. And even though the, the power of the river flowing to the sea is breaking up the vritti, the vritti does not necessarily go quietly into the night. It, it may actually, you know, crash into the flow of the river and maybe it'll even redirect the river or cause the river to have to hiccup over something big or the boulder will roll along in the river for a time. I mean, all those images are exactly what goes on within us. But what the, the power of it is, and the, um, okay, this is using the power of jnana to understand the power of devotion. Because we say, God will never give us a test that's bigger than we can handle. And Mother Teresa of Calcutta said, Sometimes I wish he didn't have so much faith in me. <laughs> but nonetheless, that is... But, but see, there's a metaphysical reality to that. Because the, the power of the vrittis to hold that sort of karma right where it is, is in a magnetic relationship to the flow of energy up the spine. And it's only when the flow of the energy up the spine gets strong enough that the magnetism of one's aspiration to merge into the spiritual eye becomes stronger than one's desire to remain protective and small around whatever issue it might be. Attachment to people, attachment to position, to home, to health, to, to esteem from other people, you know, just everybody has a big list. Or protecting your fears, holding on to your money, having your children be close by, everybody has a story. And all of those are points of attachment around which energy builds. You know, if one thinks about many things that you do, you see it starts with a point of attachment. And that attachment is there. I, I saw a friend recently um, whose children have left home, but um, a, a woman friend of mine, she, she really wanted to, her children were leaving home at that point, and she really wanted to enlarge her house enormously, which of course seemed counterintuitive to me, you would think that you would downsize. But in her mind, she's preparing for her children to marry and all have children and bring those children home. So it's like attachment and expectation of how that's going to unfold leads to this huge other reality. You see how things sort of build up around that. A, a, a woman who feels that her worth is her beauty will dedicate herself enormously to trying to maintain that youth even to sometimes what may be ridiculous extremes, you know, getting well, all the things that people do to stay young because the center point of her reality is I need to stay beautiful. And so all of this other energy swirls around it. I need my children close to me to be happy. I need my home to be happy. I need to have this much money in the bank to be happy. So all of these things happen. But then when we start really offering ourselves to God, and start doing Kriya and really start magnetizing the spine, the experience of that self-offering becomes so attractive to us 
that it begins to undermine the belief we have that something else is required for my happiness. And there's the, then this balance, which is metaphysics, which is physics, this balance begins to happen. And sometimes uh, the, the purity and power of our aspiration is ahead of our emotional maturity. And so the purity and power of that aspiration will cause those whirlpools to break up and we'll begin, things will begin to shift, often in ways that we don't want. Because we've sort of worked it out, that I'm, I'm a good devotee and this is what I'm going to do, but something in us is, is asking for more than our minds are asking for. And things get taken away. So Master just says something, how, if you love yourself, how can you love God? I mean, there's a whole huge psychological health system based on learning to love yourself. And you know, and this is like, this is not a value that people understand easily. This is day to the yogi and night to the worldly man. You think, well, of course I have to love myself. It's important to love myself. And then Master said, no, actually, it isn't. And, and this whole different dimension begins to set in. You think, no, I have to have this. You know, no, I'm, I'm a good devotee. I get to keep X, Y, or Z. And then God will say, actually, no. And then you get, we get to rise to another level. Even just the very old age itself. You know, I, I can energize, I can meditate, I can do yoga postures, and then you break a hip. And maybe you can't. And when Kamala Silva went, actually, she was master's, a very devoted disciple. And uh, dementia set in. She lost her mind. And it just seemed so, it, it seemed so self-evident from the outside that that would diminish her capacity to be a devotee. But it was so interesting in her company to feel that, to discover that it didn't. She just didn't have a rational part anymore. But it was such a dramatic example of how the personality and the soul are not the same thing. It was really something to know her. I just met her, I think actually I only met her once in that state. I think I only met her once. I never met her any other time. She was just not able to intellectually process anything. But you could just feel that her spirit was completely intact. And it, it was actually, it was very instructive for me. I've, oddly enough, I've never actually been that afraid of something like that happening to me and given how intense I am in my mind you would think I would worry about it but if it happens I won't know it so it doesn't matter <laughs> but seeing her really took that fear away because I could see if you love God you love God it's just sort of it's like being a there's nothing wrong with your soul I was giving Sunday service at Ananda Village once many years ago and, you know, you sort of feel, you can kind of feel the room intuitively. And on Sundays, there would sometimes be people there that we didn't know. And in the, as it happened, the left back corner in the last few rows, there was a group that I didn't know. And that group, it, it had the, it had a vibration that I just, I just couldn't recognize. I didn't, I didn't know who was back there. It was in the fact that I didn't know them, but I just couldn't figure out who was back there. And after, uh, the service was over. It was actually a group of whatever the right word is for now, but we used to say retarded people, people whose brains, who didn't have an, a normal adult intelligence. It was like some kind of a, a support group 
where the leaders would take them to different churches every Sunday, and I guess it was our turn. But what was so interesting to me is that I realized, and this is part was what the confusion was, the intellectual component was completely missing because they, they just didn't have the intellectual component. But there was nothing wrong with their souls or their hearts. And you could just tell that, you know, a large part of them was there, and then a part that you're really accustomed to being there wasn't there. That's why I just couldn't make any sense out of it. Because they weren't repelling me, but they weren't relating to me in the, in the usual way. And I realized as soon as, as soon as a person like that dies, they're completely intact. Because the only thing that doesn't work is their brain. And their, your brain is not yourself. And it's not even like they even have a low IQ, except the way it would be measured in a materialistic sense. You understand? They might have very high intelligence, but without a properly functioning brain, they wouldn't be able to express that in the way that it would be read in normal life. You understand what I mean? So, a lot of things... Let's see, where was I going with that? Um, a lot of things that we think we, we have to have, that's what it means to love ourselves. I have to have this. But if God thinks it's better for us not to, we lose it. And it's, it's not easy. I mean, it's really easy to say this, but it's not at all easy when things that we thought were the bottom line. I, was, uh, I have house guests again, as I often do, and because there's three rooms and three bathrooms in the house that I live in, it's really, it's a no-brainer to have guests. It's just not hard. I have my room and they have theirs and it's no big deal. But the woman who's staying with me, who is, is a friend of a friend, I, didn't, I don't even know her. And she says, oh yeah, I run a really open house too, and I really enjoy it. I have a studio apartment. And I thought, oh my, you're much more generous than I am. I said, I'll have people anywhere in the house, but I won't share my room at all. When I'm not there, I can let people stay there, but I just can't share it. She says, well, I have a three-day limit. (laughs) But I thought, wow, that is just a level of generosity. I said there, it's a level of generosity I I just couldn't come to. But you think of Sister Gyanamata. Well, she didn't share her room, but she gave it up on a regular basis. She just went and slept in the laundry room so somebody could have her room. I know when they were starting the center in Italy, the staff often, they slept in the garden shed and the garage because they just needed, their rooms were needed for guests. It was an essential to their survival. And in Gyanamata writes about having to give up her room, the one thing that she really wanted in the world was her own little space. She said that you, you have to give up everything even that which harms no one and is yours by right. That's her wonderful phrase. She said even that, because if you love yourself, you can't love God. And it sounds so unkind. And, and it's not like we have to go out and, and try to make that happen. We just have to keep doing our kriyas and keep increasing the flow of energy toward the light, and it will all take care of itself. It'll happen in balanced order. Swamiji would criticize us, when, especially in the earliest. People were so radical, trying to live without heat, trying to go barefoot all winter, you know, just... He said, it's just not necessary. God will give you enough tests. If you work sincerely, he'll, he'll send you what you need. So, but we can't be afraid of it. Or at least we have to be courageous in the moment. I would put it like that. You know, uh, Kamala, speaking of Kamala Silva... She prayed to Master that all 
the way she prayed actually is really more beautiful than just she said she she asked that she that all her karmic debts could be paid in this lifetime that whatever unbalance there was could be balanced and i always thought i just don't have the nerve to pay that to pray that and that's a lot of courage because you're just asking i would like to resolve it but i'm not sure i could go out and seek it like that i'm i've just i'll just sort of huddle over in the corner and see what he sends me but it's it's important to be jnana yogis and to actually at least consider it. What if? You know, what if it's all taken away? Being Jewish and having been born right after um, the Second World War, one of the very, very positive things about being Jewish is that I have this deeply ingrained expectation of, of it all being taken away, usually by some alien power, usually a government. But nonetheless, there's just that, that somehow in the back of my mind, when a friend of mine has a, her great-grandmother's punch bowl. And it, it, it took me a long time to realize why I was so puzzled by the fact that she had her great-grandmother's punch bowl. Or actually, I don't think she owned it. I think it was a, a discussion among the family who was going to get great-grandmother's punch bowl. And I realized, how could you still have great-grandmother's punch bowl didn't somebody come and take all your stuff away from you and didn't you have to start over? And it was, it was really then that I realized how, how integrated that is in my way of thinking, that there, there's, there's always a catastrophic break. There's no, there's no continuation. And, and being oriented that way, there's always been that little bit of a thought in my mind that in the end you'll just lose it, so what difference does it make? And not just death, but you'll lose it before death comes. I mean, there's no reason for me to think like that. But it's a good way to think. Swami, Swami says, think of your own body like that. He said, when you're washing your hands so carefully and, you know, fixing your face so carefully, think about it's all just going to disintegrate. Once the soul removes, the molecules will just begin to... I mean, they're held together by the magnetic power of the presence of the soul. And as soon as the soul withdraws, they immediately begin to disintegrate. The speed with which a body disintegrates is frightening, actually. You know, it just it just disintegrates so fast. The average person, because the what holds it together, once you take that away, it's just it goes that way. And so it's it's hard to cognize it. You know that this is really so temporary. And uh, I've shared with you all. You know, I I enjoy um, imagining me dead <laughs> and all my friends dealing with me because I've seen. I have enough friends and I have pictures in my mind of what they looked like after their soul left their body. And, and your body is so dead. I mean, it just sounds about the stupidest thing you could say. But it's really, it's really impressive how quickly it isn't you. And, and, and why can't we... I mean, the body is one thing, but our, our mental attitudes, our attachments, our expectations... I mean, these things are a lot of fun. Renunciation is a lot of fun. Just like, why would I? Why would I grovel for these things? When, when Ananda burned in 1976, uh, I was standing on the hill with Jyotish, and there were others. But I remember, the fire was burning uphill, and nothing bad had ever happened to us. We were we were just having so much fun, and this fire is just burning uphill, and we're standing at the top of the hill, and there's nothing between us in this fire and there's wind behind it and there's all this drought 
uh, drought-trained uh, dry fuel. And we're standing on the hill, we're standing on Rajasi Ridge looking down over the, the other side. I said, Jyotish, do you think it's going to burn? And he says, it certainly looks like it, doesn't it? You know, we're just watching it, like, wow, it's going to burn. What an experience. And then we, we scratched this little fire line. We had, we had little backpacks. And, and the fire, well, it was a road, actually, a dirt road. And the fire came up to the edge of it, and the wind just picked it up and just took it across the road. I mean, we, we had so much faith in this little eight-foot patch here. But the wind was behind it, just carried it, and it began to burn the dry grass over here. And all of a sudden, you know, we're standing on a road with fire on both sides. It wasn't going so fast that it was... But it was like, oh, I think that the paradigm just shifted, <laughs> and we need to get out of here, so we did. So Jyotish went toward his own house, because it was going to burn, and somebody said to him, this is at least the story as it's told to me, someone shouted to him as he was running in, take everything that's valuable to you, which is not a thing to say to such a philosophical man. <laughs> and he just walked in and just thought, there's nothing here of value to me. And it was almost like a matter of pride. I mean, that's how I heard it. It's like, I'm not going to grab for a few little things. If God wants to take it, he can have it. And he picked up some spiritual things off their altar and just walked out. I mean, they just had a baby and baby's clothes were there. Somebody else came in and took some clothes for the baby and things like that. But really, there was a, a, a tremendous, there was actually a lot of dignity in that. Okay, so what? And, but that's a nice way to feel, really. One can also be practical in one's idealism. But it's, it's gratifying to have a first impulse that is, is, a, is to let it go, rather than to hold on to it. Viktor Frankl, who was arrested at 24 by the Nazis, and his attachment, well, to his beautiful wife, who was also taken from him, but she was, he didn't know it, but his whole family died almost immediately. He didn't know that they were all passed until he got out many years later. Although he, he did say he would spend hours in, in conversation with his wife. He didn't know she was already dead. And, you know, just alone, but just somehow inwardly communing with her. But... Uh, his, his attachment was intellectual, and he was a Ph.D. student or a psychi- psychiatric student, and he had a manuscript. And, you know, when people are being, were p- being processed through, people were hiding rubies and diamonds and money and things like that. He was clutching his manuscript, because this was before computers and Xerox machines. This, this was it. And one of the people who was taking him. He just ripped it out of his hands and threw it on the trash heap. And he just watched it go like that. And he said, just in that moment, he he saw, he said, either I cling or I release. And he realized he would just, that he was, he was only, he doesn't, he doesn't put it in yogic terms, but he, his inner reality could, no one could touch it. And he just simply was going to live there and let everything else go. And that's how he survived. But why would we not always live there? Like, how long does it take us when things are taken from us to come to peace with it? It takes me longer than I would like it to. Usually I eventually do. But still, it's, it's, it's an interesting exercise. If you love yourself, you can't love God. Which is a very good one. Is about 
persecution? Is it God's, thinking of the early Christians, is it God's giving you the final opportunity to release everything? You know, we always think that if we're made to suffer, we're being punished. But being made to suffer is also a reward for our sincerity because we're being given the opportunity to discover greater strength and greater surrender. So everything is an opportunity for growth. There's not, nothing ever happens that isn't going to take us closer to God if we take it that way. And Master said, actually, well, persecution is, is really wonderful because the, by definition, persecution is, is, is unfair. It's, mis, it's bigotry, it's mistreatment, it's abuse. And, you know, all those things are supposed to be bad and we're supposed to, like, you know, protect ourselves from all those things. But what are we protecting? And, and where, does my, where does my truth come from? What do I really believe in? When Ananda was vilified in the courts through um, the sexual harassment, misconduct lawsuit that was filed against us, it was really wonderful on a certain level, even though it was a very unpleasant experience. Because when people are very seriously telling you that you're deeply misguided and you don't really know what's happening and you're actually brainwashed and you're really hypnotized and there's a whole secret dark side to everything that you've given your life to and that you love, you actually get to ask yourself, huh, I wonder what's true. Why do I really believe this? Do I just believe this because everybody else does and it's comfortable to do so? Like, what is my faith based on? Is it based on convenience or experience? Am I taking other people's word for it or do I really know? You know, do I actually distrust? Master said something really interesting. The persecution like that is, is, is testing our faith in our own intuition. Because if everybody else tells you you're wrong and you're, you're, you're being deluded, do you believe them or do you believe your own experience? What is the basis of faith? And, and how much do I love God and how much do I trust God? You know, will I hold to my beliefs even if, my, if I'm thrown to the lions? And, and, and what happened was that people just walked out to face the lions. And, and the mad crowds in the audience, they couldn't, uh, many, they just couldn't dismiss that example. You know, what is moving these people? Why, why are they not afraid? Why are they not trying to run away? Why don't they just repudiate their faith and not have to do this? And people who were sensitive enough to think had to just ask themselves, what is going on here? And people with real intuition could see it and feel it. So Swami said that, that the Christian martyrs are what made, made, it, made Christianity possible because it just created this extraordinary force of truth that was, that was, um, uh, that was uh, enlivened, that was energized by a level of tapasya which was to pass you all the way to the point of just giving up the body. It's like nothing can swerve me. I mean, just think about what the force that creates in the universe of truth that just has to be, has to find an expression. So if one is selected to be part of that service, 
You know, am I being punished or am I being rewarded? If God believes that I have the strength, Master says, said, said very definitively, the, you know, martyrs who went to their death with faith did not suffer. And you don't know what that means, whether they were lifted to a transcendent state of consciousness or whether their souls just stepped out of their bodies. I mean, you hear people in ordinary traffic accidents who just before the moment of impact are just out of their bodies. And they watch the accident. They don't experience it. And either, and sometimes then they'll come back into their body and discover the body's quite a wreck and then it all begins for them. But if you are going to die and you're pulled out of your body and you are going to die, you, you don't go through it. It's, it's, it's a very interesting thought. When Swami dreamt that he was being burned at the stake, he was very calm and quite detached from it and he thought, well, yeah, it'll hurt for a little bit, but then it'll be over. And is it worth it if you're going to really serve the world? Here then is the fourth and last stage of the soul's long journey. You know, willingly to embrace limitation, pain, and death for the salvation of the world. And that's our fourth and last stage where I can't love God if I love myself. It's, it's, it's a challenging path and that's why there's so few of us. <laughs> really. People, someone marvelously said, I've been to a lot of churches and a lot of them talk about overcoming the ego, but you guys really mean it. <laughs> I don't think he ever came back. It was like, I like it better when it's just like we make ourselves feel good by talking about it, but you're actually trying to do it. <laughs> Does that help? Yeah, I, I feared a lot of that for a long time. I feel less afraid now than I used to, but it used to be an active fear of mine you know, to just face into real physical torture or deprivation. By no means am I even-minded and cheerful about it. But I have, I have slightly less anguish in contemplating it. It's, it's a... Pardon me? I, I think I've just lived long enough. The question was, what did I do to lessen the fear? I think I've... I've, I've thought about it a lot. I've constantly circled back to it over many years. I've read lots of books about various martyrdoms, just lots and lots and lots of books. I finally stopped reading them. So I think that was part of it, to realize that people just face and go through these things and then write books about it and tell you what the experience was. I think... um, I think God wouldn't do it to me if it wasn't good for me. And that, that's the bottom line. That doesn't mean I would be brave, it, but he wouldn't do it to me if it wasn't be good for me. When, I remember I told you after I was up in seclusion in Washington when I was living in that really isolated house with no internet or no anything. And I went, I was all by myself one night. Most of the time I was perfectly comfortable there. But one night I, I put myself into a, a panic. That, that evil marauders were just going to, you know, drive up in a big truck and break into the house and, and pummel me with lead pipes. I don't know how the idea got in my head, but I, I really made myself frightened. And I was really frightened, just all by myself, just really frightened. And, and there was nothing, there was no way to distract myself from the fear. But I, I, 
I had to get over it because the otherwise I was going to have to get in the car and drive back to California. I mean, I didn't know what I was going to do. So I, I just kept saying to myself, not saying, oh, it's not going to happen. See, we often try to make ourselves comfortable by saying, oh, it's not going to happen. And that's, that's one way of, of basically my, my imagination has run wild with me. I just need to calm it down. But I find that not as helpful as, well, what if it does happen? You know, rather than saying it won't, what if it does? And I finally really just came to the realization God would not send that to me if there wasn't something good in it. And I visualized myself getting smashed to bits and then how would I ever get the ambulance there and then maybe I'd be crippled after that. You know, just like, let's run it to the bottom. And at every stage I kept saying, there, must, there would be a lesson in it because it wouldn't happen to me if there wasn't a lesson. And that is actually what calmed me down. And I think that just the constant repetition of that, but you see, you practice when it's easier. When every little disappointment comes, when people are unkind to you, when you're misunderstood, when the people that you thought you could rely on or just don't notice that they've hurt your feelings, when something you really thought you had gets taken away from you. I mean, it's a constant it's constantly going on. And how do we solve it every time it happens? Do we, you know, get all huffy and try to fight for it and explain ourselves and tell them that we deserve more? Or do we just say, it wouldn't happen to me if it wasn't good for me? And I think it's a constant battle. And I'm by no means home free. I just have observed that I'm not as frightened as I used to be. Swami used to go to the dentist, you know, and not take Novocaine and he, used to lo- he loved to tell us these, these experiences that were just god-awful to listen to, what to speak of going through. And at some point I, I began to wonder, why does he do this? But I realized that we're all ter- I mean, most people are very frightened about physical pain. And fortunately, most people do not experience it like that. So he, it was just a way, one, of testing yourself, which I have never done. I can't. I just can't. And the other was to just look at it and and not just turn your eyes away. What if you have to look at it? So you practice. And he he just shows us what's possible. Hmm. Let's take a little break and then we'll come back. So shall we go on to the next one? We were continuing during the break I, all the talking about all the horrible things that can happen to a person and how you deal with it. When, but actually the point that was really important was um, that, you know, sometimes the imagination just goes wild and the way that you calm yourself down is you realize, I'm just letting my imagination run away with me. I just have to stop. You know, there's just no point in running these fears endlessly. It's just not going to serve any purpose. And that's a very valid thing to do when you're just being crazy. But there's another kind of discrimination which is also very helpful, which is to make yourself safe, feel safe, by accepting the worst. And not not fantasizing about it, but just realizing anything can happen. I was driving here the five miles from our community to the church, and right in front of me, there's this huge pickup truck right next to this car, and this car just starts moving into that lane. I mean, a little bit too late, I started beating on my horn, which I think actually helped her 
to stop and look around. I mean, she, I, it wasn't even like uh, the blind spot because her her driver's door was going right into his passenger door. You know, it's just like people, things, just things happen in a split second. Everything can shift like that. Um, so just a second, what was the point of that? Oh, yes. So we can say that something's not going to happen, but sometimes it does. And so I try to make myself safe by going to the end of it and just, okay, so what if that does happen? Then what? And then you just play it all the way out and you see that there's always life on the other side. Because there's always life on the other side. Even if it's, there's death, there's life on the other side. You just, it, it doesn't, it never ends. It's just not that easy. I remember Swamiji saying to me once, for some reason he, he was sort of, he wasn't pleading with me because he, he didn't need to persuade me. But he really wanted me to hear it. He just said, nothing happens when you die. Nothing happens when you die. Nothing happens when you die. Meaning that you are completely intact. It's just, we think that there'll be some big, that I'll get to be somebody else. But we don't. We get to be somebody else in another atmosphere, which is nice. I'm going to give a plug to my friend uh, Savitri's, Savitri's new book. And unfortunately, I can't remember the name of it. But it's the third novel that she's written. And it's about death. And she's drawn together all of Master's teachings and Swami's teachings about death and the astral world and the dying process. And she's given it a, a story form. You know, it's, it's a higher age and um, uh, these two women, uh, a great-grandmother and her granddaughter, great-granddaughter, because people's lifespans are much longer. And they're, they're going to different astral worlds. And, but it's fascinating. It's just fascinating. She's done a beautiful job of it. And so my mind is very much on this. And she, and she, she really talks about, in, in the course of the, the little storyline, just the actual death process and what it feels like when you suddenly can't breathe and how short a period of time it is that there's this sort of panic feeling because I suddenly can't breathe. But almost before you're, you're, you've really panicked, you're out of your body at the very end. And then there you are. You know, it's like no such luck. <laughs> you just, I mean, you can't, you can't escape. That's why suicide doesn't work. All you do is take the body off. And there you are. Whatever you are, there you are. So it's a, it's a, it's a useless exercise. But we all have to, we have to practice because we're always, we're always looking for some other alternative to then actually facing it whatever it is, which takes us back to, if you love yourself, you can't love God. Now, all this is really quite cheerful. None of this is morbid. Even the, you know, the martyrdom and all that, none of that is at all morbid. Swamiji said when he went and meditated at the, uh, at the foot of the, at the place, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre where uh, Jesus was crucified, the place where it was, he said he was meditating there and he said it was just, he said it was, it was a thrilling victory. He said there, wasn't, there was no sacrifice. There was no actual suffering and pain in it. He said it was a moment of supreme triumph of spirit over matter. And he said it was just thrilling to be there for that reason. None of the usual, oh, poor Jesus, how he suffered. He said it was just the opposite. Jesus willingly and joyously, um, you know, 
lived through greater can no love be than this. He just sacrificed, apparently sacrificed everything so that people would wake up to the reality. And then, of course, three days later, he just resurrected because nothing had happened. I mean, the whole thing, just you just turn it to the other side. I remember we were in Europe somewhere. I think actually in Vienna as it happened. And uh, we were in some church. And there was a crucifix. And crucifixes are usually not my favorite thing. But in this one, it was like a combination of the crucifixion and the resurrection. Because uh, Jesus resurrected is, tends to stand, you know, like this. He's there, he is. And so they, they put the figure of Jesus in this posture, but then they put it against the cross. Of course, they didn't have all the, the nails and the, that, all the stuff that they have. So, but you re- suddenly realize that he, standing nailed to the cross was really the same posture as being resurrected. It was just this open-hearted, you know, triumphant embracing of life. It was really beautiful. It was, one of the, it was just a beautiful way of turning the whole thought. And whereas suffering and sorrow in the past was what we had to go through, now it's just, as the festival says, just calm acceptance and joy. Well, this will be an interesting experience. And, you know, it could be tough, but, but we'll get through it. As Swami often said, a little pain never hurt anyone. You know, <laughs> I can't be that sanguine about it. I'm just not that courageous. But still, you hear that in the back of your mind. You think of Sister Gyanamata suffering for 20 years and like, is it worth it? If you know what you're going to have at the end, would you not say yes? The other thing that also helps, just before we go on, I I really understand, and this is part of the, God wouldn't send this to me if it wasn't for my own good. I know where I want to go. And if the only way to get from here to there is through this, then what what am I going to say? Of course you have to go through this. And you wouldn't, whatever this might be, you wouldn't be going through it if it wasn't the route to there. And we know where we're going. See, that's where being a devotee and a Kriyabhan and a disciple or any aspect of those things just changes the whole experience of life. Because we're not just randomly wandering around in the night. We are really going from here, which is to say this state of delusion, to that state of freedom. And if there was any other way to get there, God would take you. You know, it's not like he's going to gratuitously make it tough. It's tough enough. So, anyway, those are the ways that I have gradually become less chicken-hearted than I used to be. <laughs> I'm still more timid than I would like, but nonetheless. When, I was, when we were in court, one of the times in this horrible man who was the, the opposing, opposing attorney, let me think how this actually went. Anyway, for some reason, I think he was pursuing me. We were outside the courtroom, and he was after me for something. I can't remember exactly how it went. And I don't remember whether I chased him or he was chasing me. But I do remember just squaring my shoulders and standing up to him. And I was so proud of myself, you know, just for just doing it. And just not cowering in front of intimidation. And I didn't know that I could do it. You know, because I always just avoided it. But some, somehow it was forced upon me. And I was very pleased to see that I just stepped right into it. Oh, I, thought, I thought, good for me. You know, 
It's nice to see your own instinctive response to something sometimes. Okay, number three, five, six. Give both the good and the bad that you do to God. That doesn't mean, of course, that you should deliberately do bad things. When a habit is so, when a habit is so strong, however, that you can't help yourself. Master just says that so casually. When a habit is so strong, however, that you just can't help yourself, affirm, God is acting through me. By making him responsible, even for your mistakes, you break the constricting barriers of egoic self-identity. It's a very subtle paragraph here. God alone dreamed you into existence when he made you a separate ego. The very thought of that separation is a delusion. Swami writes then, In pondering this thought further, I, Kriyananda, have come to realize that this is how great yogis must free themselves through visions of the karmas of their past lives. This is an instruction Swami includes in the commentary on the Bhagavad Gita about how a jivan mukta is not, has, no, has dissolved his ego, is no longer creating any new karma, but still may have the lingering karma from past lives because he hasn't yet dissolved the egoic identity with that. I mean, these are words that I don't know what they mean, but this is what he's saying. So when he says, this is how great yogis must free themselves through visions of the karmas of their past lives. They see in that superconscious state that it was God alone performing all those actions through them. In this way, they can release any sense of personal responsibility for them. I read this paragraph over and over again in some hope of being able to shed light on it. Because I know every so often I get a glimpse of this. This is, I remember Swamiji trying to, to talk to me about guilt. You know, you do something wrong and you really think that you're doing the right thing because you're real upset about it. And there's just this sort of part of you. And, and Swami tried to explain to me that merely feeling guilty actually does nothing to release you from whatever it was that, that activated that. In fact, what feeling guilty does is it, it reinforces your sense of separate identity. And it reinforces your egoic identification with whatever just happened. And it's completely the opposite of actually liberating yourself from it. And when you, when you liberate yourself from it, I remember talking to a friend of mine, you know, a very sweet, very saintly advanced soul, and I was saying something about just suffering from my wrong actions. And, and she just sort of looked at me and she sort of said, you do? Like that. And I realized that, that even though she also makes mistakes, but she has such a light sense of egoic identification that they happen and then they just go. And, and my uh, mistaken belief is that the more you make yourself feel miserable, then somehow that's how you make yourself better. You try to bully yourself into being better. And there's this very false idea you know, what we're doing is we're dissolving the ego. We're not perfecting it. And so we, we think that our freedom comes when we get the ego so organized that it does everything that it's supposed to do and it does it right. It meditates a certain number of hours a day. It never makes a mistake. It, it's always kind to people. It doesn't lose its temper. You know, and when we fail to do those things, 
then we decide that we're more distant from God because I didn't do those things. But what we've done then is we've, we're identifying very deeply with those wrong actions. And so all we've done, it's not the wrong action because the wrong action is inevitable. Because we just have karma. We're just not able to have every impulse be correct. And so that's enough of a problem. But then when we hold on to it, then we've created an entirely separate issue that is entirely separate from whatever momentary lapse we just went through. And I remember one uh, master's birthday, Swamiji gave such a very powerful talk, and the words were quite simple, but somehow we all understood for a split second. He said, God is very pleased when you give him your successes, but it pleases him more when you bring him your failures. And I've thought about that for years, and I realized... When, when it goes well, you think that my ego is doing a good job and you don't, you don't need to cling to it because everything's going well. You know, we think that perfecting the ego is the same as dissolving it. When things go badly, all of a sudden this enormous self-preoccupation comes in and it simply proves to us how egoic we really are. Whereas if in that moment we can let it go, it's a much more powerful self-offering because for most people the temptation to hide or cling or define ourselves by our weaknesses. I mean, there are people who are arrogant about their strengths, but I've observed in most devotees they, they tend to dismiss their strengths and cling to their weaknesses in a, in a very peculiar way. So it, 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 there's lots of ways you can put it I mean, a, a devotional way is, look what happens to me, God, when you leave me all on my own. You know, it's, it's obviously going to be a mess unless you, you know, hang out with me a little bit more than you're doing. And that's a conversation that works. It's just like, don't, I remember when I was in this situation where I just kept making the same mistake every day. If I, it was a habit that was too strong that I couldn't control. So it sort of was like, and every morning when I was more or less together in my meditation, I would say to God, If you open the door for me a crack, I'm going to rush through it. So the only possible way we're going to get through this day is you you need to keep the door closed. I said, but I'm going to keep trying to open it. (laughs) So you really have to push hard on the other side. And then, darned, if all day long I would just try to find a way to get what I wanted, and it just, he wouldn't let me do it. If I really, and then, you know, I'd make it home and I would actually be glad that I'd succeeded. But that image helped me realize that, yeah, these, if a habit is too strong and you just can't resist it, then you just have to ask God to have mercy on you. Swami loved the, the joke he used to tell. It would have a little bit of a southerner accent to it. The judge says, how do you plead? And the, the criminal says, I pleads for mercy, sir. I pleads for mercy. <laughs> you know, and that's sort of innocent or guilty. I just plead for mercy. That's all I want. And that's, that's then... So I've messed up, so what's the big deal? I remember Swamiji, when this woman was nursing her grievance, her depression, and Swami said, why are you so upset? She said, well, you know, three days ago I did this awful thing. And his response was, what ego? She said, what do you mean, what ego? I feel terrible. He says, you're so shocked that you could make a mistake that all these days later you're still thinking about it. Which is, of course, you made a mistake. Like, what is the big deal? And that's the other side of it. 
of course I make mistakes. How could I not? And then it's like, you have to just help me. You have to stay with me, Lord. If you leave me alone, it's going to be a disaster. It's very, it, it work on that more than anything. The, the flaws, the flaw is so minor compared to the way we relate to our failings. The way we relate to our failings defines everything. The flaw itself is, it'll get, you'll get over it. But if you make, as Swami put it, if you make a complex out of it, the complex is much harder to eradicate. The other is just a simple habit. A wrong idea of where happiness comes from. Okay, number 357. I, Walter, took the blame on myself in a situation one time. As it turned out, this created problems for others. Had I said nothing, those problems wouldn't have arisen. The master said to me later in a tone of rebuke, you should be practical in your idealism. I actually wanted to try to look up and find out what more that situation was, because I really don't have a clear picture of what Swami was talking about. And I had a hard time of following it through. I took, respo- I took the blame and it caused problems for other people if I had just not done it. But so I don't know what master, why master exactly said it at that point. To be practical in your idealism is really one of the most important principles of Ananda, actually. You just have to, it's not enough to sort of try to live by this very high ideal. You also have to understand how it translates into your everyday life. Or else, at the end of your life, you've made no progress at all. You've just, we've just played around intellectually with these things. You know, I, I was telling some friends recently that a friend of mine got himself in a lot of psychological trouble for quite a few years because he was trying to live beyond himself, just trying to follow too many of Master's rules that were just were beyond him to do. It was arrogant, actually, but a, a confused kind of arrogance. And he sort of said to me, well, why didn't, you know, why did, you know, you heard the same things, why didn't you try to do it? And I just said, it never occurred to me that that applied to me. It's just like I heard meditate five hours a day or sleep three hours a day or whatever it was. I just like, no way. I just can't. Even now, you know, I just, I need more sleep than that. It'd be nice if I could get up early, but I can do it for three days in a row and then I'm toast, you know. There's just no point in it. Even if everybody tells me it's the right thing. I'm idealistic about my ultimate potential, but I'm just practical about it. And that, that's what that means. You can't just have a theory and then try to make yourself live that theory. You have to accept that that's true and then you have to say, but what can I do? What, I, what I've seen in a way that this really happens is, um, it happens sometimes when people get in, 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 you know, astrological readings or intuitions that, you know, I have a destiny as so-and-so. I'm going, it, it's often I'm going to be a healer. I'm going to be a teacher I was born to do so-and-so. And all of that can be perfectly true. There's absolutely no reason why it can't be true. But then there it is. And, and you, you never look at your feet. You never actually ask, where am I standing? And where do I put my foot next to get there? And so it, it's, what are you studying? What are you training? How are you mentoring? What are you reading? You know, what are you doing to make it happen. Oh, well, you know, it's, I'm going to be. No, actually, you won't be. 
You have to be practical in your idealism. If you really want to have anything happen, you have to find a place to put your foot. And, and to keep all of those things intact are really very um, uh, important. I was remembering, this is related, this will be the last thing before we stop. This woman, oh, she was a Stanford student. Uh, this was like, it must have been 30 years ago now, close to it, because it was when we were very first starting here. I was very first starting here. Um, and I, she was a sister from a past life. I, I felt very close to her. We, we felt very close to each other. I was in my 40s then. She was in her 20s. And uh, she was very drawn to this path, but she also had many other desires. And in the end, she couldn't follow it because she was really afraid that if she followed this path, all the other things she wanted, she wouldn't get to keep. So there it was. But she was sort of testing the water with me. And so she asked me if, because I had been a Stanford student and I had dropped out and I had gone toward this path. So, I mean, she she was looking potentially at her own fate. So she asked me if I was happy. And I said, you know, almost everyone will tell you that they are because very few people want to tell you that they made terrible choices and now they're unhappy. It's just not what people say. I said, and also it's not that much of an answer because the reasons why I'm happy are very complicated. I said, a better question, and I had never thought about it till she asked me. I said, I was very, very idealistic from a very young age. I just, I could sense that there was something, there was some really extraordinary potential to life. I mean, that's what idealism is. I wasn't idealistic in the sense of, oh, let's all love each other and we won't have war anymore. I, could, I just, but I knew there was something exquisitely beautiful that we were born for. And um, when I met Swami, when I, when I discovered self-realization, especially when I met Swami, it was like, you know, that I, I saw that idealism was possible and ideals could be realized. So I said to her, you know, I've had to become more mature in understanding my own ideals. I said, but I have never had to compromise. And I still say that now. I have never had to compromise my ideals. And I said, that's very unusual. I said, almost nobody can say that. I mean, every devotee could say that. Because once you become practical in your idealism, you begin to understand that that you don't have to compromise. You just have to live appropriately in relation to it. And you never have to lower your own potential and you never have to violate your own principles. You just don't have to do it. And it, that was 30 years ago, and it's still true. I've just, n- never once have I had to, I haven't always been able to successfully express them. But that's different than realizing, oh, well, it was just a dream, can't be realized. I used to think that perfect love was possible, but now I know it's not, you know, that. It's all just a disillusionment. And, you know, she was smart enough to realize that that was impressive. And I was impressed, too. And I've thought about it a lot since then. And for me, that makes me very happy. You know, because that really is... Um, that That's really a victorious life. And I don't, I don't credit myself. I really want to... I want you to understand that it's not I have never compromised... It's that self-realization makes it possible. Self-realization 
is a, a, an idealistic way of life. And if you're practical in your idealism, you don't have to compromise. There's always, there's always a high principle that you can live by in every circumstance, no matter what. And uh, the comfort of that, at least from my point of view, is, well, pearl beyond price. Does that make sense? Yeah. All right. God bless you. Number 354. 2357. Thank you. Thank you.